The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome, everybody, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us and great to welcome my co-hosts, Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. We have a terrific topic for discussion. Elliot, over to you to kick us off. Great. Thanks, John. And, uh, you know, it's great to see some of you in person last week at the Markel annual meeting. It's become an event. So that was a pretty cool experience. So thanks to everyone who came up and said hello and look forward to seeing you all again. Um, today, you know, we're value investors. So we like talking about what isn't working in markets and where there's potential for a contrarian angle. You know, few areas are as out of favor right now as commercial real estate. It came up several times over the last week in conversations, and I've been uh, paying attention to some of the heat and some of the action that's happened in the stocks, giving them a look. And I think it's a really interesting topic. It has several potential consequences. And I feel like there are a few interesting paradoxes to what's been happening in the space. So obviously the first cracks emerged with questions about work from home during COVID when everyone uh, who wasn't an essential employee in an area that had to serve people's key needs was working from their own home, working virtually when we were doing Zoom and we're recording this on Zoom, so it's still around in some ways, but you know, nonstop Zooms all day, every day. And then as things started getting a little better with the COVID situation, there was talk about hybrid, um, key debates about a post-COVID world. Would people be uh, totally virtual? Would there be hybrid that's three days a week or a four-day a week with one-day flex? As well as would big cities maintain their kind of gravity for population? and Or, or would people become a little more keen on living in the mountains and spending some of their time working virtually, but having kind of like a city enclave. You know, these key questions, they've morphed into a degree of permanence with the post-COVID overhang. And I think, you know, it's kind of evolved in terms of the conversation. So that was the first degree of pain in uh, office space in particular. But the second degree of pain has been more recently where you are seeing as a consequence of all kinds of dynamics, uh, increasing layoffs, you're seeing um, rising interest rate stress at some of these companies where, you know, and I'll talk a bit, a little bit more about wall of maturity, um, but those two dynamics have kind of taken over. So the, the layoffs and shrinking footprint of some really large companies as well as the impact of rate hikes. And, you know, that has two impacts. One is on 
the um, actual uh, way that investors value these properties. So cap rates start rising. And the other is on the cost of debt for some of these uh, uh, REITs and owners of properties. And, you know, let's talk first about some of the occupancy issues. Um, occupancy is finally back above 50% nationally for the first time since the pandemic in office space. Um, financial firms were some of the first to go fully back, but you're starting to see it happen everywhere. Um, was looking at a Gallup poll from not too long ago. 50% of people said they were working hybrid, 30% were fully remote, and 20% were on-site. So at the peak of the pandemic, we were looking at something like 75% of people working fully remote. So we've come a long way. And that 50% occupancy that we have today, I, I'd, I'd imagine it means that more than 50% of people are going to the walk the office every day because you do have that hybrid component. So maybe in some cases, you know, you're balancing some of the workload, uh, some of the office load throughout the week. Um, but even with this improvement in occupancy, like these stocks keep going down. Vornado and SL Green are down nearly 40% just this year. Um, and part of that, I think, is because a major market like New York City in the Q in Q1 of 23 reached 16% uh, vacancy rate. That's the highest rate in a very long time there, um, despite the rising occupancy. And, you know, that's despite pressures like in a memo not long ago, Mark Zuckerberg wrote that uh, everyone should be going back to the office, that new hires perform better when hired in person than virtually. Three days seem to be a key number for him, invoking... Uh, three days being what was critical for, for that better performance. Um, Disney, when Iger came back, one of the first things he did was a four day a week uh, policy coming back. So like California, similar trends to New York. Um, starting to see that start to turn around. And I think what's notable is that a lot of this comes alongside large layoffs at these companies. So what you have in effect is during the pandemic, really tight labor markets perhaps gave employees a little more leeway to say, hey, I want to be virtual forever. And uh, now that the uh, pendulum is swung, employers have the leverage and are saying, no, 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 we want you back in the office. Um, yet still, you know, when you're shrinking your your uh, your your workforce, you don't need as much office footprint. So perhaps that's one of the big changes. And then you see something like co-working space. WeWork was surging well before the pandemic, that stock's obviously not done very well for a slew of reasons. Uh, but co-working spaces continued to gain in prominence. And perhaps some some of these uh, large employers are starting to think that workers want flexibility. And so too do landlords, that you can flex up or down your office footprint as your needs evolve. And maybe it's just not worth owning buildings anymore. So I know one company like Dropbox uh, they went fully virtual, but do have uh, some office space that they leave for employees, and they do have some employees going in, but they are subleasing almost the majority of the headquarters they built not too long before COVID. And then, you know, I referenced it before, but I think a, perhaps the biggest part of the stress in the uh, office REITs is the this wall of debt maturity. So unlike most households, commercial landlords, they can't just easily you know, refinance to super low rates and and pay off their mortgage uh, when the time comes. The debt's structured a bit differently. So there's this tweet storm by RxR CEO, Scott Reckler. He's, uh, that the company's a big owner of office space in New York City. And he cited this fact that there are 1.5 trillion of CRE debt maturities coming due over the next three years alone. It's the biggest wall of maturities in the space. 
And this maturing debt will have to be replaced with much more expensive debt. And that's not to mention the fact that some of this floating rate debt is already uh, way more expensive. And so you have the situation where occupancies are down, which leads to values down. Rates are up, which leads to values down even further. And so the debt burden has gone up in these uh, in this space. And then now just suddenly you have to refinance into much higher rates. And, you know, there are big questions about what happens next. So, you know, one of the things I'm asking myself is, are there opportunities for value investors? Are there constructive ways we could think about this? Or is this something that we should be worried about could have potential negative consequences beyond even just the, uh, CRE space alone where banks, for example, uh, own a lot of the debt, uh, especially regional banks. And so could that compound some of the problems that we talked about with the banking sector? So anyway, these are some of the, uh, hoping to lay the land for the conversation. And those are a couple of the questions that I'm considering. What do you guys think? Yeah, it's a great topic and uh, it seems pretty timely. And I feel like it would be, uh, I would be remiss to not start this with a bit of a memoriam here for Sam Zell since we lost him last week, which was uh really sad news yes. for me personally. Yes. I mean Thank one of the great that. one of the great all-time titans of the real estate industry. And uh look, I'm not a real estate investor or expert by by any stretch. I have done almost zero in the sector, but um I did know Sam Zell just a little bit. I was actually a Zell scholar in business school and and kind of kept in touch with him a little bit over the years and hadn't talked to him in a year or two um, before his passing last week, but um, just can't say enough good things about him and really always enjoyed any time he had anything to say. I thought he was just chock full of wisdom and common sense that's unfortunately uncommon and uh, was a truly uh, generous and, and wise person in a lot of ways. So uh, it's a good time to pay homage, homage to him and and uh, talk about commercial real estate here. And it's it's funny too because I was just this morning listening to an interview that somebody sent me that he recorded uh, sometime I think about two months ago, uh, certainly this year. And uh, he made the excellent point, as always, that you know it it shouldn't be a huge surprise to people that we're having a, a, a drawdown in commercial real estate, particularly in office space, because. For him, almost everything came back to supply and demand. And, you know, big commercial buildings take years to plan and permit and develop. And, you know, starting about 10 years ago, a flood of of money coming into the market, largely due to low interest rates, uh, started just pumping up massive amounts of supplies in basically every market in America. And then you had things happen like inflation and rates going higher with the of course, once a generation shock from the COVID pandemic that you just talked about, Elliot, and, and here we are. So, um, you know, and it, it is notable too. I mean, he he took over a portfolio, Sam Zell took over a portfolio that he took over and, and renamed as Equity Commonwealth about 10 years ago. And I believe the numbers are something like 100 properties, 100 buildings that he sold and liquidated and he's basically not bought, a, he hadn't bought a single thing and maybe one or something. Um, so he was, you know, cautious. And some would say that he was wrong because he was too early, but he was more than happy to do that when he didn't see uh, risk and reward balanced in his favor. He just simply would do nothing. He would, he was more than happy to sit there and wait and wait and wait. Um, and it's a shame. And so, I, look, I would say from my perspective, and again, take this with, 
it's it's not worth a whole lot. You get what you pay for on this one for sure. But I just think it's early. I think this is a very slow motion train wreck where we're just now starting to see. I mean, I just saw that Brookfield uh, handed the keys over to the EY Tower in LA in downtown Los Angeles uh, just today. Um, so, you know, we're just now starting to see actual distress. And I think the vacancy rates and the releasing rates and the net absorption rates are all very indicative of where we stand and certainly where things are headed, I think is is relatively clear. But what's, of course, difficult and where the money is to be made and lost is the judgment about what the right price should be on these assets. And um, I don't know. I Again, I look around. I mean, for example... Hey, Elliot, you brought up uh, Vornado and I and and SL Green's another good example of it. You know, look, I, this is not investment advice. I don't own either one. I'm not short anything, so I'm not talking my book in any way, shape, or form here. But I was just looking at it, and the numbers are pretty staggering. I mean, Vornado, just to pick one, at a current price of thirteen dollars, the stock is like a third lower than it was at the very low point of the global financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, it's gotten absolutely smoked. The market cap's down to about two and a half billion and there's 10 billion ahead of you in debt and preferred. But And they cut know, their dividend to zero. Yeah, that's funny because it, it does still show up as, uh, for whatever reason, some of the forward estimates are still anticipating that they turn the dividend back on, it looks like, which is kind of odd because it, <laughs> they clearly have like very little prospect of earning that dividend. So... Um, I don't know at what point they would ever find it palatable to turn the dividend on. I mean, it, it, and it's funny because this is a classic example of where people say, oh, well, I'm sure before they cut the dividend, well, look, everybody needs a commercial building and, and you know, they're not going to all go to zero and I'm I'm getting a yield of whatever. I mean, what was the yield on this before they cut it, Elliot? You know, like probably double digits, right? Well, it depends which price you're measuring from. But yeah, it was into the double digits when they yeah. actually made the cut. And now it's and, and now you're getting instead of double digits, you're getting zero and you're probably underwater. You probably have a capital loss on the position. So it just highlights how dangerous these things are. But anyway, I thought it was really interesting too. There's only a couple of uh bond issues here, but the the 2.15% notes, which is amazing enough um, that the coupon's that low because they were issued <laughs> in uh, May of 2021. So good on them for timing the market just perfectly. Uh, it's a $400 million issue. Uh, they're only yielding like 9.3%. I mean, they're at 81, 82 cents on the dollar. Um, but, you know, I mean, Fed funds are five and a quarter and I can get T-bills and, and money market funds that yield 5%. Why would I want this at 4% more? It's just kind of bonkers to me. So um, I, I don't see a ton of opportunity yet. I will say though, Elliot, you raised a, a great point. I mean, one thing where I am, I hope at least a little bit qualified to render a, a, a useful opinion is in the banking sector. I would be very, very surprised if this leads to any sort of significant banking crisis. I would expect that this leads to pain in the banking sector because loan loss provisions and allowances have been at very low levels for years, obviously, because between the combination of a, a well-performing economy and the COVID-19 stimulus that was distributed, there just weren't a lot of losses. And so, and banks are actually restricted in many cases from provisioning in advance of any sort of credit deterioration. So now that the credit has in fact deteriorated, they basically have no choice but to have finally take the provisions and that's going to go 
be charged through earnings and earnings are going to go down and it's going to eat a little bit into capital. I would not expect this to be any sort of disaster um, for most banks. Now, undoubtedly, there are some banks that are super concentrated that had very sloppy underwriting that will have some big losses that will be painful hits to the portfolio. Um, but I don't think this is going to cause, I mean, I mean, look, it could cause a run on deposits, I suppose, because as we just saw with several banks in March and April of this year, it doesn't take much uh, to, to spark a run on deposits at a poorly run bank these days. But there's no economic reason why this would be a total disaster. It would, in my opinion, be far more likely to just be a slow bleed that comes through earnings um, and, and is somewhat painful in that regard. But you know, given that the vast majority of these loans at, at most banks were made at reasonably responsible LTVs of 50, 60, maybe 65 or 70% at the very high end, um, they they should have plenty of cushion there. They're just going to have to provision for that loss that they're, you know, whatever the loss ends up being. So to me, it looks more like a slow motion train wreck than it does, you know, something that's going to be really, really ugly and painful for the next six months and then be turned around by at some point. I mean, my, my guess would be given the massive amount of oversupply um, that we're still talking about this, you know, two years from now, I wouldn't be surprised if we're still talking about it three or four years from now. Uh, I think there's that much to work off. You know, another great point that Sam Zell made in this interview I was listening to was that not only did you have a massive amount of oversupply um, b- because of interest rates and because of over ambitious developers, but you had a lot of artificial demand where all these shared working spaces, you know, and these idiot companies like WeWork said, well, we're just going to gobble up as much possible space as we can find. And we're going to sign five, seven, 10 year leases on spaces in demand, in advance of the demand even developing. And that's obviously gone down the tube. So you get a combination of like, well, we're we're overbuilding, sure, maybe a little bit, but we're also meeting all this demand that's popping up and, and both were overstated, right? Like the, the supply was way out ahead of what it should have been and the demand was overstated. So the supply was kind of like doubly high. So I think it's going to be pretty ugly for a while. Yeah, no, it kind of makes sense. And you look at the equity of Vernado, I mean, it's basically 20% or less of the enterprise value, depending on how exactly you look at their total debt load. Yep. Um, which is, you know, the market's calling this a levered stub at this or making this a levered stub at this point. A lot yeah, of its it is. value is going to come from optionality on figuring out what to do. And that's a good point on the banks. I think that, that that makes a lot of sense that it's not exactly going to be this massive calamity, but that that's it'll all. be a slow bleed. Yeah. Um, uh, that would be my guess. I mean, again, I was... We talked about this on, for anyone who missed it on on an episode a couple of weeks ago about the whole banking disaster. A friend of mine who's long short called me and said, "Hey, have a look at this balance sheet." And I looked at it and I about fell out of my chair because it was the dumbest thing I'd ever seen. It was Silicon Valley Bank, and he called about it in August or September of last year. So he was short it the whole time, and we'd been talking about it and trading notes on it, you know, for the ensuing seven or eight months before it failed, but I was still stunned that it failed, right? I did not expect Silicon Valley Bank to fail. I expected it to have a massive headwind, a multi-year headwind as it dug out of this incredible hole that it had created for itself. And I expected it at some point to have to raise painful and dilutive equity capital to, to get out of that problem as well. But at no point did I envision them having a massive run on deposits to the tune of 40 or 50 billion, you know, a a huge portion of their deposits leaving in one or two business days. That was not something I would have assigned a material chance to. So I could be wrong again about, you know, some headline comes across that Bank XYZ is taking some massive write down on a on a 
commercial property in the portfolio and they hadn't really provisioned for it. And now they have to provision for it and charge it off and whatever. And that spooks a run on deposits. I mean, that is obviously entirely plausible in this environment. I just don't think it, you know, if you, if you, withstanding that, there, there's no reason the banks can't provision their way out of this and just charge through whatever the write downs happen to be. Whenever the NCOs come through, like that, it's, it's entirely digestible for them, right? They didn't make so many bad loans at such bad rates that they're all going to get swamped. I don't think this is going to look like the SNL crisis 2.0 in terms of real estate taking down the banking sector again. That that to me seems unlikely, but everything else seems, you know, 100% in play. So I know it's hard to like um prove counterfactuals, sorry, hard. I should use the word impossible to prove counterfactuals, but when you look at these office REITs, um they are trading well below their COVID lows. Yep. And when you think about the COVID lows, I, I mean, I'd say it's safe to say that the majority of people, the world's evolved in a better way than we'd feared at the worst of COVID. For sure. And yeah, these things are far worse off. And so the counterfactual I'd ask about is had it not been for rates at this point, would these things be better off in the market? Like, would they be substantially above their COVID lows? Or is there something else at work where in this slow bleed way, it's kind of like just the reality that even if it's not the worst case, it's like, well, you know, the future of office is just way less good than the past of office. Uh, is is that what's at work? And I know it's hard to parse these out, but that's one of the things I wonder about because I do yeah. think it's somewhat paradoxical that we're at this point where I'd say arguably the landscape for occupancy looks as good as it's been since since you know February of twenty twenty, and yeah. yet you know the outlook for these companies looks as bad as it's been. So could you well, parse out some of that? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. I think about it all the time too, and you obviously can't assign a single cause an attribution to it and you can't even assign you know exact weights to the various things there's obviously multiple things at play here but to your point i mean one thing that i think most of us wouldn't have envisioned certainly me uh, i wouldn't have envisioned that covid when it hit would turn into i mean i did realize it within a few weeks that most pandemics are a two year most viral pandemics anyway are about a two year ordeal and because of some various, you know, issues specific to this specific to this one, it turned into a little bit longer than that in many ways. I think most people would agree this was a two and a half or three year ordeal in many senses. But I, it, at various points along the way, I think everybody or most people anyway still expected office occupancy to return to basically what it was pre COVID. And I think that's been what has all come to the fore in the last. 12 months. So coincident with this massive spike in interest rates, which is a huge problem, obviously, and we'll, we'll come back to that. You also had this realization that like, no, uh, commercial office space is not going back to what it was before. And office culture is not going back to what it was before. And so I think what what may be playing out now, and again, I was wrong about this for at least the first six months, 12 months of COVID, you know, it was definitely into 2021 before it dawned on me. Uh, and I've made this point before, but I think it's it's proving out, which is that, you know, before the Great Depression, the stock market was open half a day on Saturday, and most people went into the office on Saturday for half a day, right? It was a five and a half day, six day a week, you know, business and office culture. And as 
the Great Depression hit and, and just eviscerated demand, most companies found it expeditious to cut back on that. It was less a choice of leisure, I think. I mean, again, I, I hope I have the historical context right there. But in any case, I mean, the fact remains that, you know, you used to have much more than a five-day Monday through Friday office culture and business hours kind of culture. And then for a long time and, and a couple of generations at least, you had a, a very, you know, steady, you know, more or less Monday through Friday, nine to five kind of office culture. And it, it occurred to me at one point that like, wow, maybe, I mean, with the rise of work from home and, and what's emerged is this hybrid culture, you know, COVID-19 is probably going to look like the Great Depression in, in just creating a permanent shift towards a different work lifestyle. And, uh, you know, I think the data show it. And I think anecdotally, we all know most people that if they work at a company of any size, um, you know, some of them are certainly back in the office five days a week. And some of them were always in the office six days a week. And, you know, we all have our different uh, rhythms and routines, but the the prevailing office culture seems to have settled around three or four days in the office and one or two days remotely. And I think that's probably permanent and here to stay. And that's what I think has settled into the reality of the public securities that you're talking about here and the vacancy rates that you're seeing. And that, you know, that's what's being discounted now into these asset prices. Again, I don't find the asset prices all that appealing because to your point, Elliot, I mean, the equities are just being valued as a leveraged stub which is fine, but they are very, very levered stubs. And I don't think they're trading at quite attractive option values or anything like that either. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that part of it plays out and, and what other curveballs are down the road. But I think, you know, once the horse is out of the barn here in terms of saying, okay, we're, we're settling into this new world of you know, the majority of people having a four and one kind of schedule. I, I I don't see it going back uh anytime soon, even if we have a big recession. And you're right. I mean, employers have definitely regained the upper hand in terms of what they can dictate and what they can't. Um, and I look, I personally am a huge believer in that people do need to be together two, three, four days a week, right? You cannot, I I personally think it's ludicrous that at the one end of the spectrum in January of 2020, the prevailing narrative was. Well, of course, it's completely obvious that every bright human on earth needs to be physically together five days a week, Monday through Friday in downtown San Francisco. And within, you know, a few trips around the sun, everyone has decided that, no, no, we're all going to work from our own little cabin remotely in the mountains of Idaho and never see another human being. Obviously, neither one of those is true literally in its polar extreme, but I'm certainly closer to the former than the latter. I don't think it's feasible or realistic for people to be fully remote in most jobs, any sort of job that that entails even basic communication um, and any sort of interaction with other humans. I mean, obviously, if you're a freelance writer or coder or something like that, I mean, there's there's plenty of exceptions that are obvious. But for the majority of people, I just don't see it as feasible. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. I, I mean, it's really uh, interesting to think about, though. I, the counterpoint to, I guess, why this reality would be suddenly dawning is like Zoom stock during the pandemic and the amount of articles that were saying, you know, virtual is here to stay. So um, it's just mystifying in some ways. But I'd, I'd agree that if just the switch from five days a week to four or even three, that proportionately reduces the amount of office space a typical company would need. Right. And it also means you could repurpose or re proposition your office space. So one of the examples I'd heard is office space has become more for cooperative work in some specific companies, 
whereby a person doesn't necessarily need their own four walls. So instead, what you have is this open floor plan. And on open floor plans, you could fit far more people than you can when you do have four walls. Like just the walls alone take up some space in a footprint. So right. formerly, you might have like 20 people uh, in in a floor, and now you could have uh, at least double that. Yeah, I think um, it's a double-edged sword, though, because I think before COVID, you saw a big push, you know, maybe 5, 10, 15 years ago was the peak towards open floor plan offices. And I think the the data and the anecdotes were quite clear that most people hated them. So you're right. I mean, it, it's it's an unassailable fact that as you go from required attendance five days a week to something less than that, that you need less space. I mean, that that is patently obvious, but I've seen some of these numbers bandied about to like, okay, you know, we were at 150 square foot square feet per full-time employee before. And if we dropped 20% from five days a week to four, then we should, you know, slash that number equivalently. And I'm not sure that works to be totally honest, but I think the numbers are also equally clear that you know, to me, the bigger issue is yes, people are going to be signing up for less space as as office spaces come, as leases come due. Uh, but you're just you're putting that lower demand level into a market that's still so dramatically oversupplied because of just classic stuff, right? I mean, years and years and years of low interest rates, the classic timeless behavior of all real estate developers, which is you know among the pro, most pro cyclical industries on earth. And then you get smacked head on with just this crazy double whammy of a of a glo- of a pandemic for multiple years that makes a permanent shift in in the demands for the for the office sector and you know the three headed monster then of, of rising interest rates because to your point I mean you're you're it's just like we talked about with the residential sector a while back I mean if you have a low rate on a building and you have it financed for a long period of time and your occupancy is X and you can make an NOI of you know, whatever is acceptable to you, then you can play offense, right? And then you can go out and and provide either better amenities or lower rates to your potential new tenants. Um, whereas, you know, some office property that's coming up on, you know, a refinancing or a maturity, I mean, they have a huge problem. And I think that's where you're just now starting to see that wave, like you mentioned, Elliot, of defaults and, and maturities that are coming because there's just no way around it. Yeah, I, I would say you guys have hit the nail on the head. I mean, that is kind of the wild card this time around. Um, You know, commercial real estate obviously has gone through quite a few cycles by now, but the whole, you know, post-COVID work from home trend, that's the big, uh, big wild card. And that's kind of what keeps me away from it. Um, Even though I think if it was just... um, you know, interest rates and inflation, you can kind of look through that perhaps to the other side. Um, if, you know, offices in general were basically the same as always, uh, because in my view, interest rates, you know, they're up because of inflation and Ultimately, inflation means uh, pricing power or higher higher prices, including for things like commercial real estate. But because of the work from home trend, it doesn't seem like there's any pricing power in commercial real estate right now. So you kind sure. of have higher interest rates, but you don't have higher rents, at least not at the moment. Um, you know, what's kind of interesting as maybe a, a counterpoint to this is if you think about some other 
industries that basically are going away and and one that comes to mind is coal so you you know just around covid uh, thereabouts uh, coal stocks all looked like they were going bankrupt and then they ended up ripping you know 10x or more um because coal while it's going away longer term um in the short term you know it's uh, it's still very much uh, needed and you know maybe it's hard to kind of know over what time frame um office space needs and demand will shrink um i i do think that over the long term you know office real estate will have to be converted or at least a good chunk of it to kind of mixed use um and and so forth so we'll just, you know, we'll have to see. I, I do think um, you guys are right that it could be a slow motion train wreck and that there's a lot more distress to come. Um, you know, it's it's hard, you know, whether you can kind of pick your spots or not with uh, a company like Vernado that apparently wants to do share repurchases. That's kind of a vote of confidence and um, they do have a good track record with steve roth at the helm uh, but you know the the risk the, the kind of the unknown is just sort of uh, what's going to happen on the demand side you know that's why right. i'm more comfortable personally with um residential real estate like apartments and that's been hit uh, just as hard um, in a lot of cases. I'm thinking of a German company called Vonovia. That's the biggest uh, owner of apartments in Germany that currently trades at one third of NAV on the equity side. And there, you, I don't have that concern uh, as much. In fact, if there is uh, work from home, you know, maybe that means... Uh, home real estate actually is going to have a bit of a demand tailwind, you know, where people may add a room or something uh, to be able to work from home. So, yeah, but uh, great points. And, um, you know, we'll just have to see how it plays out. Yeah, so I have... John, are office occupancy trends like kind of similar in Europe as the U.S.? Are people more back to the office or? That was literally what I was sense? about. That was what, literally what I was about to ask. Is like I don't know much about where things stand in Europe, John. So where where are things on the supply and demand front in European office space? Yeah, um, you know I don't I don't have the numbers uh, necessarily, but my feeling is it's pretty similar to the U.S. Um, and you know you also have some other factors like distress in the European banking system, for example, with uh, companies shrinking uh, their real estate footprint. Obviously, Credit Suisse is an example, but others like Deutsche Bank and, and, and other European banks, they've been kind of under pressure for a while. Um, and, you know, all the technology trends that are in place in, in the U.S. and globally applied to Europe. So I don't think it's much different um, on on the office side. Yeah, it's 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 really hard to say. I, I'd say in, in maybe on the interest rate side, Europe hasn't moved up as much yet. Um, and that's just a, kind of a function of the European 
central bank keeping rates lower um but inflation certainly isn't lagging uh us uh inflation so i think there's upward pressure on interest rates in the euro area and um again back to the slow motion train wreck theme right yeah yeah and one that thing was i would such say a good point you made on higher interest rates versus the lack of higher rents in office space and it's a totally different dynamic than what had been going on in uh like multifamily where there's tighter supply and you actually get uh some of the pass through of inflation but also higher rates and it's interesting when you look at a company you you mentioned uh the german company at a sharp discount to nav you look at a company like vormnado it's half a book value maybe the market's saying though the liquidity is not necessarily there to sell down some of your book shrink as a company and harvest some of the value via the replacement value of it all um i wonder if some of these companies start doing that do large asset sales in order to pare down their leverage and try to get something like even if you sell at 80 cents on the dollar um it's it's a win for your share price from here mm -hmm. yeah that's a that's a great point um although i'm not quite sure when you're talking 80 cents on the dollar that's maybe a little bit low given how much leverage some of these companies have um but I, I one one kind of thing that stood out for me with vernado as well was that they have a lot of i think a lot of the value is also tied up in the um penn station development yeah uh, which seems huge and ongoing so they're not really getting the rents there yet i guess the cash flow or or not what what it should be eventually and if in this market environment and certainly if it gets worse um you know investors patience to kind of roll over the debt for kind of new development projects or even just finishing such a huge project i think you know that's another risk factor that you don't have with some companies um you know like the the vonovia that i mentioned where basically um they actually have been selling uh some assets at um you know call it 95% of book value which is pretty good um and so they've been kind of extending their own refinancing runway um so it it it's kind of on a case by case basis but i personally would stay away from companies that have a lot of uh value tied up in in projects that still need to be finished and and require you know additional uh investment yeah that's a good point cuz one of the stories that sam zell told that i'd never heard was uh when he sold his equity office portfolio to blackstone and it closed i believe february of 2007 and you know blackstone ended up selling off a huge chunk of the portfolio to third parties almost all of those third parties took a bath on those properties obviously and then blackstone had its own near-death experience on the real estate side with what was even left behind they ended up doing well on it because they wrote it out and it recovered very strongly uh, but uh sam zell's famous for giving away these uh very uh thematic and memorable gifts and he sent really nice uh watches to vornado actually among others who were the bidders that lost 
lost, so to speak. They they did not win the bid. Uh, they didn't outbid Blackstone for this property. So he sent them all really nice watches. And the engraving said, timing is everything, right? And I think that's <laughs> exactly true in this case. Amazing. Right? Because, because the Penn State project, or the Penn Station project, excuse me, probably would have made a ton of sense if they could have gotten it done 10 years ago. And now it's just a complete albatross, right? I mean, I agree. Like, you know, even if that project ultimately makes sense, if it gets done, you know, sometime in the near future and in 25 years from now, it's like a thriving development. Like it's the timing could not be worse. And in real estate, it really, really matters. So it would make me super nervous as well. Could be really ugly. Yeah, all this talk makes me think about the uh, like American Dream Meadowlands, which is kind of I remember it most called Xanadu that they started in 2004 and kept changing hands during the financial crisis. And it was basically like whoever touched it had something bad happen to them. And uh, it wasn't finished until I don't even remember the exact year, but maybe even like 2018 or 2019, something like that, nearly two decades after it was started. Yeah. Um, but it's also, I do remember stuff like one Brooklyn, which was a major development, uh, when I was uh, like coming out of law school, uh, heading into the financial crisis. And that was thought to be a terrible, uh, terrible, like sign of the peak of, uh, in, enthusiasm in, in heading into the financial crisis. And it was like trouble for a little bit. And it's turned out phenomenally well. Uh, now that we're 15 years past that event, you know, Penn Station's kind of one of those places that's always been a center of the universe for anyone around the New York City area. Um, but I, I guess as far as the problem goes for Vernado, they not just uh, have this under earning on the asset. I think they still have some cash that they have to commit to developing it. Right. So, you know, you get into some really tough questions about how you finish this from here, what you do, what the right choice is. And they've had great leadership, like you said, John, for a really long time. And these people have to see it through. But I, I, I agree. These things are scary to kind of step in front. And I do find it interesting that we're all contrarians to agree here, to a degree here, but we're all in agreement that, you know, this is not an area that we should be uh, taking a stand in. Yeah. So I'll say this, though. I mean, to John's point a second ago and and to what you just mentioned there, Elliot, like in a different world where I knew what I was doing and I was a a competent real estate investor or to the point that something got totally obvious, I would do it. I think there could be because if my slow motion train wreck thesis holds up, I mean, that that over a period of time, I'm, you know, envisioning like two to five years kind of thing over which you reach a bottom and then things start slowly crawling their way to a better place. You know, if I could find something to do along that way and knowing full well, I'm not going to peg the exact bottom. I am absolutely a long-term believer in both the value of cities and the value of commercial real estate and the value of office buildings and the value of human beings coming together for commercial enterprise. So if that wasn't clear, it, it I hope it is now because I do not, you know, have any, um, you know, dystopian views of like every downtown central business district is just going to be a hollowed out hellhole and no one's ever going to go to the office again. And this is like a permanent, you know, secular decline in in commercial office space. That seems completely and totally unrealistic in my opinion. So um, I would love to find something where 
you know, even with my limited experience and skill set, I could I could take advantage of it where there was just pure psychology or panic or something, and there was something given away for you know a very obvious discount. Uh, and look, I mean, it happened before. You did not need to be any sort of genius to look at GGP uh, right here in Chicago back in the financial crisis, right? I mean, that that's a classic example. And maybe things will get so bad. You know, if we have a recession on top of it, or if the banking world comes unglued for some period of time or whatever, maybe you'll have something similar like that where it pops up. Um, you know, Capmark back in the day was one of the best investments I've ever seen in my life because uh, it, it did have residential exposure on top of commercial exposure. And at one point, um, as the company was approaching bankruptcy, it might have even been in at that point, but you you could have bought the senior bonds, which were the fulcrum security below the net cash on the books. And the company was not burning cash. Uh, it ended up recovering, obviously, well above that level and then equitizing and, and returning multiples of the original investment if you'd have had the courage and the available cash to buy that uh, security at, at the price that prevailed for you know a few weeks or maybe a month or two um, in late 2008, early 2009. So maybe you'll get some opportunities like that here. And if we do, I think we should all be alert to them. I just think that right now, I certainly don't see anything resembling that. Yeah, and this is exactly what prompted me thinking about it, the paradox that I've been referencing before, because I deeply believe that the actual occupancy landscape is getting more, not less constructive. Things are moving in the right direction on that front. And yet, you know, for other reasons, there are these pronounced pains in CRE, and there could potentially be things out there which stand to benefit alongside it. So it's also... um very much, I mean, a topic that I was contemplating for today is how much narratives are driving things from stuff like AI, which is absolutely going bonkers today. We're recording this on May 25th, to stuff like the other day, all the uh, CPG companies were down quite a bit. And the excuse was the GLP-1s are changing consumption habits. Uh, and this quote from Walmart about how margins could face incremental pressure because people's eating habits are changing. And it's like, oh my God, just a year ago, we didn't even have this class of drugs and it's not even the labeled use and you're spinning it into narratives. <laughs> and it's kind of just absolutely wild to me to watch this play out. Agreed. All right. Well, uh, unless you guys uh, have any closing words, I think we'll wrap it up. Great discussion. Um, Phil Elliott, anything else? Oh. I think we covered pretty much everything I had on on my list. I thought it was a, it's a fascinating topic. I uh, I just wish I had either better, clearer answers or near term opportunities. And unfortunately, I'm not there on either one. Yeah. So as always, if you're listening and you have either, you know, feel free to send them our way. And if there's any thoughts that we've shared that you want to push back on, absolutely, uh, you know, let us know. Yeah, always like hearing such things. I, I know for a fact there's a couple of people that are very sharp real estate investors who who listen to this. So yeah, please point out where we might be wrong. Yeah, and as a as a dyed in the wool contrarian, I it almost pains me to kind of be negative on on something that <laughs> uh, the consensus is negative on. Um, but I think you know when you're contrarian, you've got to be contrarian and right at the same time and um you know in this case i'm just not sure what the right call is on on commercial real estate so you yeah. know that's the only thing to do is to be on the sidelines uh in that case so 
And chip away little by little because you never know when exactly the opportunity will uh, manifest. Yeah, and we may revisit this um, at some point because I don't think this uh, topic is going away um, anytime soon. No, agreed. Totally. Terrific. Thank you so much, guys. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.